Hello and welcome to part two of our sit-down with ESPN Crick Info's Peter Delapena, where we discuss more issues in the emerging game. If you missed part one, you can find it in all our usual podcast spots, and if you're one of our patrons, you can get extended content for both parts, and some more bonus stuff coming soon. For now, though, sit down and enjoy the thoughts of one of the best minds in the emerging game. Looking around at some of the other questions submitted by people around our various platforms, uh, Felipe Lima de Mello from Brazil wanted to ask, what would be the best initiative to show the game to non-cricketing countries? A lot of people would perceive the USA as a non-cricket country, so I feel you're well-versed in this to to broaden it to other parts of the emerging world. Um, How do you think uh, showing the game to non-cricketing countries should go? I'm always a big believer in just a one-on-one approach and literally just putting a bat and ball in somebody's hand in terms of spreading the game. I think sometimes a lot of administrators in particular get caught up in just overwhelmed and thinking, well, if they put out a mission of, well, we want another 100,000 people playing the game or another 500,000 people playing the game by X date, whatever, they get so caught up in in the, the target number that they they don't know where to start necessarily, and you know you can't get a hundred thousand people or five hundred thousand people watching or playing the game overnight. My in my personal experience, um, whenever I've tried to do cricket, I don't know what I would call them information sessions or trying recruitment sessions. Okay, whether it's watching or playing, if I if whenever I've I've tried to get people in a group of say twenty five or thirty in a setting and try and uh, go through introductory elements of cricket, it's been very challenging because not everybody's learning at the same pace and not everybody's processing things at the same pace. And you might have some people who clicks immediately and other people are just totally lost and uh, need a bit more attention. And if you're, if you're trying to cater to all those 25 or 30 people at the same time, you're going to lose focus and inevitably the people who are way ahead and who everything is clicking immediately are going to get frustrated that they're being held back. And the people who, who aren't processing things immediately are, are going to get frustrated that they're not getting the individualized attention that they really need to help understand things. And it just kind of goes haywire. I've always had much, much more success when I've brought somebody one-on-one or maybe, you know, two at a time and just, brought them into the game and and whether it's bringing them to a game and letting them watch at their own speed and and ask let them ask questions as as and when they see fit instead of me trying to force feed something down their throat this is happening this is happening this is happening this is happening i think again people who are cricket fans um cricket fans and cricket players have this view of cricket as being this super sophisticated, you know, high-level sport, high-brow sport that only somebody with 140 IQ can understand. And it's, you know, it's not for dummies or, you know, people are too stupid to understand it. I don't I don't think people, especially cricket fans, give the average person enough credit for being able to process things and understand things. And maybe not everything needs to be dumbed down. People, people who are sports fans and people who played other sports, they don't need to be treated like infantiles uh it's it's capable for people to understand things and so 
I, A, I try to let people ask questions instead of just trying to force feed stuff. But B, from a playing standpoint, again, just literally putting a bat and ball in the hand, letting them, letting them experiment, letting them learn through trial and error instead of, you know, not, not teaching them the LBW law in the first 30 seconds. And I think the, the thrill, just like any other sport, the thrill of hitting a, uh, hitting a ball, I mean, it, it's, it's fantastic, whether it's cricket or, or baseball or ice hockey, just putting stick and ball or bat on ball. Golf, same thing. There's a, there's a great there's a great feeling to that, and I think again my own personal experiences in cricket, it, it doesn't even have to be bad on ball. One of the the things that I've found has been most translatable or most effective, um, getting people excited about cricket is is just uh, practicing hitting the stumps. It, it doesn't have to be bowling. I'm I'm just talking about fielding. Fielding is is something that's not necessarily appreciated as much as it should be. In terms of both playing and, and from a teaching standpoint, getting people um, just in a in a training environment and just asking them to practice runouts, hitting the stumps. I mean, um, to translate it to another thing, you know, if you conceptualize it as you know on a dartboard, you're just aiming for bullseye. And if people can play darts and hit the bullseye on a darts board, or hit certain targets on a darts board, you put a cricket ball in the hand and just ask him hit the stumps. That's your target. That's your bullseye. And the excitement that I've seen little kids get and adults get just from hitting the stumps is incredible. And so, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that, again, instead of trying to get overwhelmed by thinking, oh, I can't teach cricket unless I get 22 people together at once because we need to play a full game of cricket and we need to have 11 people on one side and 11 people on the other side. And if we can't get 22 people, well, then it's just not worth it. I think that's a, it's a very unrealistic and also pessimistic approach. You know, you've got, and Tim's seen this full well in, in Hong Kong, whether it's Hong Kong sixes or six-a-side cricket, or, you know, there's so many ways to modify cricket to make it appealing to all sorts of different people. And, I, again, it, it's a case of not getting overwhelmed, thinking you need to keep to a, a very rigid certain set of, of guidelines, and that's the only way people can appreciate cricket uh, just by breaking it down to a very um, basic level is is how I, f- I find people fall in love with the game and want to learn more. And then they'll, they themselves will be more inquisitive and then they'll go to YouTube and they'll find match clips on YouTube or they'll go to Wikipedia. They'll, they'll find all sorts of avenues themselves to, to get interested. And, and that's, to me, that's the approach that, again, I found successful. And I, th- I think more people... Um, if they want to convert and proselytize people to the game, don't get so caught up in in the the quote quote uh, rigid laws of the game. You know, just just do anything you can to be creative and, and adaptable, and 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 people will follow. I'm going to jump in here with the next question, Mister Delapena. But before we get to uh, some broader sort of team selection and whatnot. Charlie Burke actually asked a question when we said ask anything, and I think it's a probably a good spot to ask you there about what's um, shown to a new market. Now, looking at yourself and the game that, that, that you watch, if you could change one law in the game, what would it be? And I'll ask everybody on the panel as well, now that, now that we're all here. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it would necessarily be changing a law per se, but it would just be the uh, emotional attachment to the law. I would, I would say, encourage anybody and everybody, oh, yes. and everybody at all. He's gonna do it here, isn't he? I, I know, you know, you guys know where I'm going with this. He's gonna do it at every possible opportunity. <laughs> r- run out the non-striker before delivering, 
every chance you get until it's destigmatized. He's a lie. See, I I don't want to say the the, the six letter word anymore because I, I feel like it's a dirty word, and we need to we need to find a, a new way to 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 describe it. You know, there's there's a colleague of mine at Cricket who who's recommended rephrasing it as a non-striker stumping, which I think is fantastic. Ooh, yeah. So as the bowler, would you have a number of stumpings, but not uh, it would actually go to your numbers? Interesting. That would be a change of the law. Well, they, if, if you want to interpret it that way, yes, then that would be my law change. But but no, on a serious note, again, this is something that in some ways is an obstacle, this whole spirit of the game nonsense. Uh, you can tell you learned cricket in Australia. Spirit of the game nonsense. <laughs> if I saw somebody leaving the crease and the, the the rule book says you're outside your crease, you can be run out or you know, you're at, you're at risk of being dismissed. I don't feel there should be any hesitation from taking the bails off and there should be no stigma attached to that. I feel it's not illegal. It's it's clearly not illegal. There's room within the laws and for a non-striker to leave his crease early. If you want a head start and you want to get a jump on getting to, to the striker's end to get a quick single or to turn a one into two a hell of a lot quicker, go for it. You just have to be willing to accept the fact that with that risk comes the element of exposing yourself to be dismissed at the non-strikers end. And you shouldn't be whining and moaning and, oh, well, I was only an inch out or two inches out. I wasn't really trying to steal one. If I was really trying to steal a run, I would have been two yards out of my crease. I was only an inch out. Well, that doesn't apply at the at the striker's end. If if the striker is, he's only an inch out when he's stumped. Well, he was just overstretching. He wasn't really charging down the pitch to try and hit the, the bowler for six. He was just doing a forward defense and he just kind of overbalanced. He didn't really mean to leave his crease. Like, no, we, we, we don't We don't talk that way. You're out of your crease. You're out stumped at the striker's end. Why should you not be out stumped at the non-striker's end? It's a fair game as far as I'm concerned. Nicholas? Um, well, just briefly, I actually uh, really like calling them Mancads because Vinu Mancad was a, a fantastic player for India for a number of years. And going back to the very first incident of non-striker run-out, uh, when the, the Australian press got upset about Bill Brown being dismissed that way, uh, Don Bradman basically said, well, what's the fuss about? He was out of his ground. It's in the rules. And, you know, I think it should have ended there. Um, in terms of uh, laws I would change, um, this is for 2020 cricket. I I think super overs in non-knockout games are just dumb. So I would just put them straight in the bin. Um, and one other thing that I've seen, I think they were experimenting with it recently before, well, <laughs> before everything was completely postponed. Um, the, the, the idea of having a, a dedicated no ball umpire, um, at sort of mid off to help out the strikers and umpire so that, uh, no balls aren't missed. And also so that, uh, the strikers and umpire can concentrate on, you know, LBWs and whatnot. I think that's a really good move. Yeah, well, they ran something like that during the Women's World Cup in regards to the no balls, and it seemed to work okay. We didn't hear about it as much as I thought we would. And yeah, talking about man-catting guys, like I, I have to agree. Um, just thinking about it now, you know, I, I can't really see what the problem is. I, I think that you know the spirit of the game question should be directed more at the the batters trying to to gain extra ground. I, I don't think there should be uh, any qualms um, and I think if you're if you're silly enough to, to leave your ground um, yeah you should be punished for it whether or not it's a it's a bowling stumping but yeah as much as I don't like bowlers um, and I'm sure a lot of people don't like bowlers I wouldn't want to give them <laughs> any single opportunity to try and get me out uh, and that includes being at the non-strikers end and yeah it's kind of similar when you think about it to, to baseball in a way where you've got guys 
on bases looking to either steal or at least gain some ground. And if you can pick off someone at first base, you know, trying to, to steal some some ground, then yeah, I, I think I think it, it should be free reign. So we're all um we're all now advocates for the man cat, huh? What about you, Tim? I've got to say, I've changed in my stance, and it's not just because Mark Chapman was run out against Oman. I still think that was adjudicated incorrectly by the umpire because if you remember, that was back when they had different playing conditions for being run out at the the non-strikers end between internationals and and not. Um, I've got a couple. Um, Sorry, Berkey. You know how much I like talking. Um, I think the ball, there should be no other runs should be able to be scored after uh, the ball strikes the stumps from being thrown by a fielder. I don't think a fielding team should be penalised for for hitting the stumps. Uh, It's one thing at missing the stumps and a fielder not being there. Uh, And then if it deflects off the batter and either running batters, there's no more runs. It can be scored like full stop. Doesn't matter. It's not, not... spirit of the game or anything it's just that shouldn't be part of the game uh, i think with the advent of maybe this is one for international cricket only but considering there's no such thing as sight screens moving backwards and forwards anymore and there's an entire bay clothed as a sight screen and batters should be off the so non-striking batters should be off the wicket i think bowlers should be allowed to bowl left hand right hand around or over the wicket without having to tell the batter if a batter's allowed to change hands um and i know that the different restrictions change now because of that what why can't a bowler change and do whatever they want so i think as long as the umpire's in in maybe a set position the bowler doesn't have to tell anyone what they're going to bowl and that can be another way of trying to to getting one ahead of the batter if the batter doesn't know exactly what he's going to bowl so that's something i'd do there um fielders touching the boundary um i'm sick and tired of seeing replays upon replays of whether the body is touching the the ball the same time as the boundary if it's if we're talking about a boundary f- oh, sound like sound like lenny ba- boundary four as opposed to a, a a six and a catch which i think apart from that silly rule we can jump up and down the outside of the boundary that needs to be changed but it should just be the ball it, it should just be the ball going over the boundary and once the ball touches the other side it doesn't matter where your legs are, you know, a bit like uh, dealing, with, dealing with a football. I, if you're good enough to slide to do the uh, Muhammad Nabi slide behind the line to keep it inside, I'm happy with that. And we don't have to watch 900 replays about whether you were touching the the, um, the Toblerone, branded branded uh, call there, the Toblerone and the ball at the same time. Um, one thing that annoys me, and it's a, as a bowler rather than a batter, is the way that umpires adjudicate wides when batters step inside the line and the ball passes down the leg leg side that would have gone rocketed into their pads if they hadn't moved, but they move inside the line and it misses them and the, and the umpires call wides. That really annoys me, I, I, and I'd like to see that stamped out because it's not a wide. It would have been into the legs. And, you know, I, I hear them occasionally talk about it. I'd love to see a game played with no leg buys. And if you don't hit it, it doesn't count. Um, the Dean Jones suggestion about having the, the third umpire out on the field, which I, I don't like that idea because if you've got an umpire standing in line with the crease at the other end and he's only watching that crease, he's going to have the biggest danger of a ball being smashed into the side of his head because he's going to be the one who looks up last because he's watching the feet hitting and then he's going to look up. But if he doesn't have the time and you've got a fast bowler, I, I just think it's it's just got danger all over it. Unless you're going to put a guard up on the field, um, yeah, it's got to be something off field but as uh, Russ Dignan has proved there is tech could do it easy, easily enough so there you go there, there are my uh, there are my suggestions I honestly jotted them down um, in 
while Peter was giving his um, vote for MANCAD. Talking about developing the game in America and showing the game to Americans and the idea of the best way to learn is to do, as you put before, a result hopefully down the line would be having more people with no previous perceived generational cricketing background playing the game at a high level. Ben Stinger comes with a question and he has this American Eagles idea similar to that of the Hong Kong Dragons project. He was thinking about a potential team which features players of African-American background, Italian, Jewish, English, Polish, German, or even of Mexican ancestry, basically the minority in terms of American cricketing circles. How viable would that be for the U.S.? No, and the reason why uh, is basically because racial issues are such a hot button issue in the u.s and if you uh, limit a team like that along ethnic lines you're gonna have all sorts of legal implications pop up uh as an unintended consequence i understand the the, the thing behind it and in some ways it's a lot more easier to pull off in in different countries who don't have kind of the melting pot of an issue of the culture like you have in in the u.s my my own stance is again i think people sometimes conflate the issue and, and this is whether it's a usa eagle team an american eagle team or just the national team itself people conflate the the kind of stance or perspective saying oh oh you just want white people or you just want black people or you just want uh, mexican people or you just pick pick your ethnic demographic you just want x and that's your idea of what an american is no and I, i've had this conversation with with players who again mainly usa under 19 players who feel frustrated about this the issue with u.s um representation and and people who feel like they're being denied what they perceive as their you know quote quote rightful opportunity is not ethnic it's cultural there's a great divide within the u.s cricket landscape of people who are um ethnically indian versus culturally indian and what i mean by that is there's a great sense of unease or tension between players who are of Indian descent, who are, who are born and brought up in California, Texas, Florida, whatever, who view themselves as 100% American and, you know, grow up in, in Texas or, you know, go to high school, play high school sports and also play cricket. And they come up through USA under 19 and they feel like their, their quote, quote, spot in the national team when they graduate out of under 19 cricket is taken by a player who is uh, born and brought up in India, played first class cricket in India and has migrated to the U.S. And now you, you look at these two players superficially you know, and, and people overseas do this. This is what a lot of people overseas do, they, and they just kind of, um, with a broad stroke, they oh well, this 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 is just a bunch of Indians or it's just a bunch of Asians playing. And the kids who grow up in the U.S. take offense to that because they say, no, 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 we're American. We were born and brought up here. We grew up here. We learned our cricket here, and they identify. Th- as Americans first and foremost, and they see the quote-unquote Indian player who's, who's moved from India at the age of 29 to 30 after a first-class career in India and has moved to the U.S. and is now in the national team. There's a great angst and anxiety about that kind of player coming in and, and pushing the local player aside, even though you look at them superficially and you say, well, they're both Indian. Well, this guy's uh, Indian heritage, Indian background, grew up in Mumbai, and this guy's Indian heritage, Indian background, but grew up in Los Angeles. And a lot of people conflate the two outside of the U.S. and say, oh, there's just a bunch of Indian guys playing for USA. Again, the guys who, who are coming out of the USA and our program say, no, we're American. And they feel 
they should be the ones playing for USA, and they feel like their spots are being taken by players who they don't feel, or they don't consider as American as them, either because they um, are just simply not citizens. Again, you've got the residency rule, where you can have a player who plays for USA who's a three-year resident, but is not a citizen. And that kind of player in particular is somebody who a lot of these players are uh, who are born and brought up in the U.S. are not happy about playing for the national team because they feel like, hold on a second, I came up through the system. Why am I being denied an opportunity? I understand, to bring it back to the Ben Singh question, I understand the the concept behind it, um, but you've already got this issue <laughs> within the, the, the cultural issue within the national team structure itself of guys who are ethnically the same, again, but culturally very different. And until that itself is reconciled, that that has to be the first obstacle before you even, even think about a, a, a broader objective of a, an American Eagle team, which would consist of players, whether they're born in California as uh, ethnically Indian, you know, uh, second generation, third generation kids who are Indian, Pakistani, West Indian, whatever, um, versus, uh, you know, compared to Irish, Irish American, Italian American, Polish American, Chinese American, Japanese American, Mexican American, whatever. Um, they need to they need to sort out the first issue. When I say they, American administrators, U.S. cricket administrators, they need to sort out the issue of first pri- prioritizing or, or really giving genuine opportunities to that second generation, third generation Indian American, Pakistani American kid who is currently being denied. That's got to be objective number one, I think, before they can then even consider moving on to spreading the wings further and and trying to recruit people from, you know, other ethnic, um, other elements of, of, you know, the melting pot of America. Well, a question that has also come through is from David Ager, who is another of our patrons and is fitting because he has immigrated to the States just a week ago, which is craziness given the, the situation we are in in the world right now. He talks about the idea of the USA sharing a T20 World Cup with the West Indies. Would you see a similar effective growth to the MLS's progress after hosting the FIFA World Cup in 1994, perhaps? No. Uh, and I, I, I've had a, a recent conversation about this with Tim Wigmore, who wrote the article that was broken on uh, online in the Telegraph about the potential joint bid put forward by the U.S. and the West Indies. And the reason I would say that is is because of the same reason why T20 matches and other matches that have been played on neutral soil in the U.S. have had zero impacts or very negligible impact um, whatsoever. It's because, again, I think people conflate the story of the, the FIFA success in 94 and they conflate it with cricket and, and they conflate the dynamic of what was going on in terms of the accessibility to cricket. What is lost on so many people, again, a lot of these things are pushed by people who are outside of the U.S. who don't really understand the, the dynamic or the different aspects of the environment of cricket itself in the U.S. and also cricket in the broader context of sports culture. You have to remember the 94 World Cup... Okay, leading into that, USA had a very, very strong rise in their uh, soccer development that was driven primarily by players who were homegrown. Uh, There was a very, 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 very strong grassroots soccer culture in America, both boys and girls. Okay, and that and, and I mean, so much attention gets put on the 94 World Cup. 
um, in terms of the, hosting the Men's World Cup. Not nearly as much uh, attention is paid to, I think, a much more significant event, the 99 World Cup, the Women's Soccer World Cup in the U.S., and the, the fact that the USA women won that. And you have, in equal, in equal measure, boys' soccer and girls' soccer was rising at the same time in the U.S. You don't have that in cricket, okay? That's, that's problem number one. While you have a lot of attention paid to, to boys' cricket and boys' academy cricket and men's cricket in the U.S., in a country where equal opportunity is so prevalent, especially all through youth and high school and college sports, there is next to no investment and effort and attention paid to women's cricket and girls' cricket. And until that changes, you're never going to get the broad-based support for the sport in the country. It's it's kind of sad and pathetic, the amount of um, help that's been provided uh, at a local and private investment level, in addition to a, a broader uh, administrative level with with the administrations of whether it's currently with USA Cricket or, or in the past. I mean, USA Cricket has tried to address that. Most recently, they announced a number of um, girls and, and women's tryouts, uh, talent identification events, which was, again, I would say a positive step. But, uh, you know, there's a lot more that they need to do. But again, bringing it back, soccer was growing hand in hand, step in step, boys and, and girls, men and women. That's not happening in cricket in the U.S. That's that's issue number one. Issue number two, the FIFA World Cup, both in, in 1994 when it was on home soil and World Cups beyond, are shown on network TV, okay? Uh, you have uh, a huge media presence in terms of spreading the awareness and, and building the fan base and building the interest for the sport in terms of the media, the domestic media, that has played a hugely significant role in the rise of soccer in the U.S. Now, in 94, not every match was shown live on English-language TV on, on ABC and ESPN, but you also had the, the Spanish-language channel, Univision, had the had the Spanish language rights, so I mean, one of the things that was uh, I remember as a kid growing up, I was ten years old at the time during the '94 World Cup, was we wanted to watch the matches live, so we would turn on Univision and Andres Cantor, you know, whenever any goal was going, go. And it became a case of, well, you know, we didn't want to, once we saw Andres Cantor doing those calls on the live soccer broadcast, we didn't want to watch the English language broadcast anymore. Even when the English broadcast was available live, we turned it to Univision so we could watch the Spanish language broadcast live because we wanted to hear Andres Cantor with his goal calls. And we started to learn Spanish, some of the words with soccer, just by listening to the whole broadcast. But, um, you know, that made it fun. But, again, the broad point was having access to it live. There was live access on network television, either, you know, for some of the matches uh, on English language television on ABC and ESPN, or for all the matches if you went to Univision, okay? You don't have, for cricket in the U.S., whether that's every single World Cup that's happened up to this point, or if uh, USA were to jointly bid, okay, none of these matches that have been shown, these neutral site matches, these T20 matches, you know, West Indies versus India in Florida, or West Indies versus New Zealand in Florida, West Indies, Bangladesh in Florida, cricket all-stars, when Sachin and Warren were going to bring cricket to America, right? None of those matches are shown on TV anywhere, uh, network TV or, or any other kind of TV. They're all on either satellite networks or internet access, uh, you know, websites or, or, you know, streaming platforms, okay? And, and so the point is, it's, it's not visible. 
Okay, any uh, one of the things that I found most laughable in 2016 when there was that incredible T20 match that was decided on the final ball between West Indies and India, where it was I think 245 played 243, and um, Dwayne Bravo had uh, Dhoni dismissed off the last ball of the match, was if if you live in the Twitter bubble, all these people, all these prognosticators on Twitter was, oh my God, what an incredible match! This is going to be huge for cricket in America, like. This match is gonna make cricket explode, and oh, so many kids in in across America are gonna pick up a bat and ball. They're gonna be inspired by this match. Uh, haven't haven't seen you know Kale Rahul score a century and Evan Lewis score a century, and haven't you know Bravo take the last. Week. Oh my God, what a great advertisement for cricket and cricket in America. What planet? What what planet were they living on? Uh, they were living on the, the the Twitter planet. Okay, they weren't living on planet Earth, because outside of the people, the the fifteen thousand people who were actually in Lauderhill. In the stadium, literally nobody else in Florida saw that game. Nobody else in America saw that game. It was hidden away on yuptv.com. Okay, that was the that was the streaming provider at the time in 2016 that had the rights for that series. Unless you had a subscription or an online pass to Yup TV on their broadband streaming service, you didn't see that game. Okay. There were there were no highlights shown on the local news. Nobody knew that game happened. There were no advertisements outside the stadium. So unless as part of the bid for this T20 World Cup, this proposed joint bid, unless that includes a, an access point to have cricket um, televised on local networks, um, ABC, Fox, uh, NBC, CBS, okay, nobody's going to care, nobody's going to notice, it's not going to make any difference. Nobody nobody will have any idea that the World Cup just happened, if that's in 2028 or 2030 or 2030, whatever. The, the point is that... It keeps getting lost in in the the cricket versus soccer comparison. Where they, oh well, it, it happened. You know, soccer exploded in the U.S. after the FIFA in the World Cup in '94. There were so many factors that were involved to make that happen. Cricket doesn't have any of those factors in its favor at the moment in the U.S. And what's going to happen is, yeah, within the West Indian and the South Asian community, um, yeah, it'll be very, very, you know, popular. But outside of those two teams, how, how really, realistically, how well will, will the World Cup be attended? Okay, if you look at the evidence of the, the CPL matches in Florida compared to the West Indies matches or when India is visited, there's a reason why the CPL left. Okay, you've got all these... You know, everybody keeps saying, oh, there's 10 million or 15 million cricket fans in the U.S. Oh, there's such a big market, emerging market of, of fans waiting to be tapped into, blah, blah, blah. Those people love their national teams. They couldn't give a damn about the U.S. national team. When I say that those people love their national teams, those people, the expats of the, in the West Indian and South Asian communities, they love India, they love Pakistan, they love the West Indies, whatever. They don't support cricket broadly. Because if they supported cricket broadly, we'd already have a hundred magnificent turf cricket facilities all around America. We don't have that. These are the kind of people who will pay five thousand dollars on a first class ticket to fly from New York to uh, Manchester to watch India play Pakistan in the twenty nineteen World Cup, but they won't pay five dollars to walk down the street to go watch you know their local cricket match in minor league cricket. Okay, because they have no attachment to. The minor league cricket franchise in New York, and that that was obvious through the CPL. You would have those India West Indies matches in 2016 and 2019. You had 15,000 people sell out in the first year in 2016, and you had 12,800, I think, was the capacity they kept it at in 2019. Okay, that sold out. The CPL, there were no Indian players that came. There's no strong bond with any of those CPL teams. The crowds kept on going south every single year. Nobody was supporting it. The very last year, which and this was the final straw, 
if you think about this on paper, you'd be, most people would be stunned. They, on a Wednesday night in Florida, you had a Jamaica Tall was team captained by uh, Andre Russell playing against a Barbados Tridents team that featured Steve Smith. Okay, you've got two of the best players in the world on opposite sides, and that match was played in front of 700 people. So you cannot tell me with a straight face, oh, there's crickets, crickets, popularity is amazing. Look at all these. We, we got all these um, numbers for, for traffic, online traffic and online streaming, and, and look at all the, the traffic that goes to Cricket Info. It's all coming out of the U.S. We've got so many cricket fans in the U.S. Again, to underscore the point, those people are all clicking on traffic for India matches, Pakistan matches, West Indies matches, and everybody keeps throwing six. Oh my! If if India played Pakistan in New York, they'd sell out Yankee Stadium, or they, you know they, they'd have eighty thousand people. Oh my God! It would be amazing. Blah 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 blah. Well, guess what? Not every match is India versus Pakistan. Okay, if you have Australia playing Bangladesh in Los Angeles as part of the World Cup, you're lucky. You'll be lucky if you get a thousand people show up to that game. And if if you get Sri Lanka playing Ireland in Chicago, again, you'll be lucky if you get five hundred people to that game. A thousand people to that game. It, it, it cricket in the U.S. is no different from any other part of the world in the in the modern context where everything is so heavily reliant on India. Unless India is playing in every single one of those games, all the India matches in a T20 World Cup in the U.S. every single India match will be sold out. There's no doubt about that. You don't have to be worried about that. All the other matches are the ones you have to worry about. You're not going to get yeah. You'll get you'll get fifteen thousand or twenty thousand people to India India versus Ireland or India versus Zimbabwe in a T20 World Cup in the U.S. Of course you will. It, when it's Zimbabwe versus Sri Lanka in North Carolina or, or Chicago, you're going to have a concern there. And that wasn't the issue in the FIFA World Cup. Again, to bring this back to the FIFA World Cup, the FIFA World Cup in 94 is still, uh, as far as I know to this day, the highest attended or the highest uh, gross ticket sales of any World Cup, FIFA World Cup in history because it didn't matter who the teams were. Every single match was well-supported, well-attended regardless of whether USA was playing in it or, you know, at, the, at that point in time, the best teams in the world, regardless of whether Brazil was playing in it, regardless of whether Italy was playing in a match, every single match was, was basically packed. You're not going to have that in a Cricket World Cup in the U.S. The Indian matches will be sold out, yes. Every other match, not so much. Um, so in person and on television, the, the amount of impact it realistically will have at, at this you know point in time, based on the current uh, makeup of the cricket culture, is, is very negligible. Uh, Fraser Middleton checks in uh, with a question on Twitter. Hello, Fraser. He wanted to know our thoughts, or specifically your thoughts, Peter, on the scenario of World Cricket League 2, given the situation that we're in. How are they going to resolve the issue? Could you have a revised tournament? Or do you go the whole hog and just push everything back so all of the teams still get to play 36 one-day internationals? I think the League 2 competition is actually in far less trouble than a lot of the other fixtures that are on the calendar because... It was mapped out to last for two and a half to three years. In particular, I think USA and Scotland are in a far better planning position in order to squeeze these um, fixtures in compared to other countries who, like, say, for example, Nepal, who've only played one series and 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 Nepal even is in that bad shape because again the biggest concern is the fixtures that you're supposed to host and Nepal wasn't scheduled to host another series until November so they're um, fine from a logistics standpoint at, at this point in time and USA uh, and Scotland I think are perfectly fine at this point in time because they got quite a number of fixtures out of the way early USA's hosted one series they played uh, two series on the road now 
Now, they were supposed to host the series in, in April, obviously, but USA, again, you have to keep remember, there the USA is so big, you have the potential for alternate venues to be available 12 months of the year. You're not locked into a window where because this series in April was postponed, well, you can only play cricket in the USA from April to September. That's not true. You could schedule this series in the USA. Um, you could squeeze it in in November or December or January, February in a warm weather location in the U.S., which Florida certainly falls under that. So, and in Scotland, that's obviously not going to be an issue in terms of them being uh, one of the other teams as part of the tri-series that was just canceled because, again, there there'd be nothing conflicting for them. If they're hosting their, their home matches in the Northern Hemisphere summer, if they're called to go travel to the U.S. in you know November, December, January, February, that's not going to be an issue for them. And so... Yeah, the fact that USA already got one home series out of the way, it w- I think it might be slightly more difficult if USA still had three home series left to host. They've already hosted one in uh, last September, so they've knocked one out of the way. They had one uh, that was you know j- just postponed, and then the third home series that they were due to host is not until, I think, August in 2021 when Nepal was supposed to tour with Oman. So that is, is still you know way out you know in the distance. Um, but in terms of slotting in a potential um, space on the calendar for the series that they now have to make up, I think it's a hell of a lot easier uh, logistically for the U.S. to handle in terms of accommodating a venue with a, a warm weather climate, A, and B, the fact that, yeah, they only have two series left to host instead of three. And that, um, again, they, they're a country that can accommodate cricket 12 months of the year depending on where they want to host. Um, yeah, in the northern hemisphere summer months north carolina would be an ideal venue but in you know november december january february you can play in florida and so that that's not going to be an issue for scotland because scotland wouldn't be playing home series during that during that time frame anyway so whether it's from whether it's from a usa specific standpoint or from the seven team as a whole perspective in the in the whole league i don't think that the Current postponements, you know, now, you know, more than likely, I haven't gotten the official word yet, but the Namibia, Scotland, and Paul series is going to be more than likely postponed, just counting down the, the days before that official announcement is made, because that's supposed to be in April. But, um, you know, even if, it, even if it means all the series through July or August are postponed, you've got enough holes in the associate calendar, and, you know, we were joking a lot earlier about it. Um, you know, associates are fixture starved as it is. So it's not a case of trying to rearrange and find a slot in the calendar for India, uh, where they've got so many tours and the IPL and all these other things that they need to squeeze time around. You know, it's not as difficult for USA or Scotland or the UAE or Namibia or Nepal or Papua New Guinea to try and find a gap in their fixture calendar because all they do is have gaps. Um, you know, I, I don't think the League Two will be as affected in the near term by trying to rearrange uh, fixtures. Com- you know, compared to, say, I think, I think a much bigger issue is the thirteen-team Super League. Um, the the longer this coronavirus pandemic drags out, it's going to be a hell of a lot more difficult for the Super League fixtures to be rearranged within the full member FTP and for the Netherlands to try and. Uh, rearrange things in consultation with the the eight countries that they're supposed to play as part of the Super League compared to any of the teams in in Cricket World Cup League 2 should have a a far less challenging time trying to to find solutions to refill those those windows that have been postponed. 
Yeah, it's, it's going to be tricky. And the Netherlands are almost a victim of their own success here. You've explained it very well uh, there. And the Netherlands are going to have a very difficult time organizing things there. If you look into the future, uh, we also have a question from Akesh Chandra on the Associate Cricket Lounge asking if there's any countries close to full membership in the near future, Peter. I would think that the idea of full membership is a little outdated and almost more of a burden for members to become full members, uh, if anything else. I know we've seen Ireland and Afghanistan. Uh, things have almost been more difficult there. Do you see anyone striving for full membership anytime soon? Well, you took the words out of my mouth partly there with, with the Ireland example. I mean, if you're looking at, at what's happened to them, uh, I don't see too many associate members who'd be chomping at the bit to, to want to be full members knowing the... The financial struggles that Ireland has now encountered trying to meet the demands of what a full membership slate entails in the added administrative costs that go along with that. I mean, USA Cricket has expressed, I mean, at their AGM, Ian Higgins said that USA Cricket has an ambition to pursue full membership. I think was that the twenty-minute long AGM? Uh, thirty-five, <laughs> thirty-five minute. Come on, get it right. Oh, sorry, <laughs> thirty-five, like the uh, that other number. There you go. That's that's what makes it easy to remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that pursuit is driven by the. I think the interpretation that Ian Higgins and perhaps other administrators, I think from speaking to some people in Scotland, they feel this way too, that they've, they envision or they've gotten some signals from the ICC that full membership will be decoupled from test cricket. So you would still have the benefits and the funding uh, increase from the ICC potentially and the voting rights of full membership without the financial strain and the financial burden of needing to upgrade various parts of your infrastructure to meet the demands of test cricket, which everybody can see through the island example, is just a money pit uh, in terms of draining their resources, uh, trying to upgrade their facilities and put in place the, the first class interpro competition and all that, which generates basically zero revenue. You know, there's no fans that come to watch that in person. And, you know, everything associated with that, if, if it's if it's a revenue drainer instead of a revenue generator, other countries might come to their senses and and the ICC might come to their senses too and say, you know what, uh, in the future, it's not necessarily fair to make the the demands that we did of Ireland to, to actually put them in a worse off financial position by asking them to invest in all this stuff that that it's a, a loss leader. It doesn't um, help out their their accounts by any way, shape, or form just to satisfy this maybe anachronistic uh, ideal of, well, this is what we defined full membership as. And, and if it means, you know, if full membership means bankrupting the country, you know, is, is that a wise way to administer the definition of full membership? And is that a wise way to administer, you know, your, your resources locally? So I think people... I, I know. Well, I know associate countries still have an ambition to pursue full membership, but I think it's with the caveat that full membership in the future will mean um, not necessarily being inclusive of, of test cricket. What they're pursuing, or ostensibly what they're pursuing, is full membership is supposed to mean added added funding, increased funding, and an increase in rights in terms of voting participation and decision-making at the ICC table. Of course, everybody wants those things. Uh, you'd be foolish not to to have that ambition to have a bigger slice of the pie. You know, having a one thirteenth or a one fourteenth slice of the pie. If you're the Netherlands or Scotland or Nepal or the USA, you know, if if the full member revenues are divided 
amongst themselves, you'd want to have a 1 13th or 1 14th slice of the pie as opposed to just getting the collective crumbs in the current 1 13th, which is 95 associate members together. You want a bigger slice. So the, the way to achieve that is, I think, if, if they if they collectively negotiate that full membership will will not necessarily mean you have to satisfy test test cricket requirements which part of that would you know you would no longer have to put in place a first class infrastructure or you know first class competition which is going to just drain your your pockets yeah it's a tricky one and if you don't get that slice of the indian pie uh, if the indian pie isn't as big with the ipl not running this year it will become uh a bit more precarious uh before we let you go peter uh, probably a good opportunity here to, to advertise your book one more time inside the select room request for T20 cricket stardom. I've got it in my hands here, uh, over 450 pages. Is this, is it size eight font, Peter? Because the, the writing is quite small. You definitely get, uh, your value for, for, for the pages. <laughs> size 10, come on, come on, size 10. It wasn't that small. Hopefully the next time we talk, you know, things are a little bit rosier in the world, but yeah, do want to thank you for, for spending your day in isolation with us and, yeah, your your thoughts and opinions are well. They're invaluable to the to the emerging cricket community. So yeah, a massive thank you to you. Thanks for thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you, gentlemen.